service. Hey everybody, happy International Women's Day from all of us at Double Elvis. In celebration of the cultural, political, and socioeconomic achievements of women, we would also like to celebrate women musicians, creatives, and music professionals. Every week this March, we will be re-releasing one of our favorite episodes of About a Girl, hosted by musician, activist Nikki Lynette, and writer Eleanor Wells. This week, we're revisiting the story of legendary funk diva Betty Davis. Thanks for listening. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Miles Davis, a jazz legend, arguably the biggest of all time, a trumpet player and composer who's among the most influential American musicians ever. He spent six decades as a musical and cultural icon, fusing genres with incredible style. But this isn't about Miles Davis. This is about Betty Davis. That's Betty with a Y, a first-of-her-kind funk pioneer so underappreciated that when you Google her, the search engine thinks you probably meant Betty with an E and points you to information about the golden age of Hollywood cinema star. But this Betty, wife of Miles, was an electrifying star too. A songwriter and singer so erotic, raw, and ahead of her time that no one was ready for her. An earthquaking icon of feminism and black power during a time when it was unheard of for a woman, let alone a black woman, to own her sexuality so explicitly. A woman who had married and divorced Miles Davis before releasing three of the most unexpected and astonishing albums of the 1970s, and who then disappeared. This story is about a girl. She prowls. That's the only way to talk about how she moves on the stage. In a set of tiny sequined silvery shorts and a matching glittery halter, Betty Davis doesn't slink or sidle across the stage so much as she stretches into it like it's her own skin. She is larger than life, from the huge afro on top of her head to the thigh-high boots she walks in. Her movements are primal, elemental. She's an electric tigress of pure sexuality. The year is 1973, and Betty Davis is the rawest, raunchiest thing audiences have ever seen. Her fierceness captivates crowds. Fans would throw drugs to her on stage, little tributes from the congregation, baggies of coke, tightly rolled joints. Most music executives hated the whole thing, her self-assuredness a sign of some shifting tide they didn't see coming. She is the strangest person I've ever met. Her guitarist, Carlton Carlos Morales, would later recall, chuckling. Betty Davis was something else. Music was a huge presence in the North Carolina home of the Mabry family. As a child, Betty Mabry would stand on a table to reach the record player in the top of her dad's closet. 
the whole family would gather at her grandma's house, where the matriarch sang and swayed along to blues records from the 20s and 30s. All young Betty wanted to do was write. She wrote her first song at age 12 and would sing to her friends and family and perform in talent shows around town, uninhibited from an early age. Eventually, her family relocated to Pittsburgh, and at 17, she moved to New York and enrolled at the Fashion Institute of Technology. To support herself, she worked at a club called The Cellar and took on modeling gigs. New York City was a happening place in the 60s, and Betty was a magnetic person, completely tuned into what was going on. Her DJ and hostess job at the hip Greenwich Village nightclub helped her meet and befriend everyone from Eric Clapton to David Bowie, Jimi Hendrix, and Andy Warhol. Her modeling career landed her in the pages of magazines like Ebony, Glamour, and Seventeen. You can see her big personality in those photos, laughing with her mouth wide open, grinning wide, wearing tall boots and short skirts and technicolor dresses and fishnets. She knew people everywhere she went, other models, photographers, designers, musicians. They all loved Betty, and things were going really well for her in New York. But she didn't want to be a model. That wasn't the end game. She still wanted to be a songwriter. She had an introspective side, too. In contrast with the bold artistic style that she would become known for, she was actually quiet and spiritual. When she was alone or with friends, away from the public eye and the parties, she was soulful and more restrained. Betty put that thoughtfulness into writing, and by the late 60s, she was gaining some traction as a songwriter and recording artist. She penned Uptown for the Chambers Brothers, which appeared on their 1967 LP, The Time Has Come. As Betty Mabry, she released a single called Get Ready for Betty, and she recorded a handful of songs, including soul singles like Live, Love, Learn for Columbia Records with her then-boyfriend, Hugh Masekela, as a producer. She was out at a club with a friend one night when she noticed a good-looking trumpet player in a straight suit. Miles Davis noticed her, too, and told one of his guys to go over and get her attention. She told him she didn't care much for the jazz, but damn, she dug his shoes. Miles wasn't exactly single at the time. He and actress Cicely Tyson had started dating a few years earlier, while he was still married to a dancer named Frances Davis. It's Cicely's beautiful face that appears on his 1967 record, Sorcerer. He'd told the press he planned to marry Cicely after the divorce with Frances was final, and that plan was still very much in place when he met Betty in 68. The story goes that Betty followed him home one night, and when she knocked on his door, she saw Cicely Tyson was there with them. When you get rid of her, Betty purred, I'll be back. He and Betty were married the next year. The art on the cover of Miles' 1969 record Fia de Kilimanjaro is arresting. It features two psychedelic overlapping portraits. A striking woman eyes the camera, sparkling beneath glittery lids, a cat eye, and thick lashes. That's Betty. Miles and Betty got married in September of 68, when he was 42 and she was 23, around the time he was recording Fia de Kilimanjaro. There's a song on the record, Mademoiselle Mabry, that's named for her. 
Now, Miles Davis was cool personified. He literally helped invent a style called cool jazz. And one of his best-known LPs is titled Birth of the Cool. He was a jazz guy playing and lounging at New York City clubs, cool in the way of Ferraris and fine suits. He grew up wealthy, and he had a correspondingly refined air. But this was the late 1960s, a turbulent time of transformation for America and especially Black America. The end of segregation, the Vietnam War, the Black Panthers. American ideals were slowly shifting, not only politically, but culturally. Miles might have been cool in the 50s, but the trappings that constitute cool are always in flux. Young people were getting more into psychedelics and long hair than booze and hip suits. Black communities were more interested in listening to the Motown songs breaching the mainstream than the jazz that remained a kind of subculture. Miles' classic look stood out as uptight for the time. He was worried about losing ground. He didn't want to become a stale trumpet-playing artifact of another era. Then he met Betty. Young, vibrant, fashionable, plugged in. And you could practically watch his transition in real time. Gone were the tailored suits, the manicured look. Betty bragged of throwing out his entire wardrobe. Enter the turquoise, the giant sunglasses, the platform shoes, the leather vests. And then there's her indelible mark on his music. One of the reasons Miles Davis is so universally lauded as a groundbreaking artist is his late 60s transition. Like Bob Dylan plugging in and dragging folk music along with him, Miles went electric, blurring the lines between contemporary jazz and mainstream pop and rock and roll. He discovered the wah-wah pedal, drawing incredible tones from his trumpet. On Bitches Brew, Miles' electric experimentation reached new height. He moved away from traditional jazz into an entire new sound, eclipsing his peers. This was all a result of Betty's influence. Miles told Betty he planned to call his boundary-smashing work Witch's Brew. No, she told him. Call it Bitch's Brew. Miles would earn a Best Large Jazz Ensemble Grammy for Bitch's Brew, which would also become his highest-charting album. It would go on to gain recognition as one of the greatest jazz records of all time, a legendary work that's among the first ever jazz fusion recordings. Miles Davis's decision to plug in changed jazz forever, changed music forever. Miles was a genius, but he almost certainly wouldn't have reached his peak without Betty. Miles gave to Betty too. For one thing, he told her she needed to perform. If she wanted to keep writing songs, he told her she should be writing for herself. He pushed her to sing, tried to get her to recognize her own talent. He even tried to use that series of demo sessions she recorded with Hugh to get her a major label deal, but no dice. Miles was driven and absurdly talented, and Betty was drawn to his energy, which was both light and dark. His genius gave and took from me, she recalled years later. But my smile had become false. You can't hear Miles' anger, his volatility, in the slow shuffle of songs like So What or the gentle, jazzy sway of Venus de Milo. 
but he'd earned the nickname the Prince of Darkness long before Ozzy for his brooding, intimate trumpet stylings and his serious and temperamental nature. Betty didn't tell anyone he was violent, how much he tried to control an indomitable woman. And it was a hard marriage. Every day married to him was the day I earned the name Davis, she said. They were divorced after a year. Betty kept that name she'd earned. And she kept some of his connections, too. She decided she'd use some of them to cut a record. In the early 1970s, Betty released three albums. Her first, Betty Davis, arrived in 1973. It was recorded in just three weeks. She worked with Sly and the Family Stone drummer Greg Errico as producer, and a whole host of notable names appeared in the liner notes. Neil Schoen of Santana and Journey, Sly Stone's bassist Larry Graham, Pete Sears. It was released by a now-defunct upstart label called Just Sunshine, and Betty wrote all of the songs. Her tracks had titles like Game is My Middle Name, Come Take Me, and You Won't See Me in the Morning. And as those names suggest, they were, well, suggestive. Here's how Betty opens the record. If I'm in luck, I just might get picked up. Elsewhere on that song, she's vamping, she's tramping, and she's wiggling her fanny. She teases, try not to pass out. For a debut album, it makes a hell of a statement. Women can be just as forward, just as empowered, and just as nasty as men. This was shocking stuff in 1973. And then there were her vocal stylings. She'd scream, she'd growl, her register somewhere between a screech and a moan. It was more Janis Joplin or Tina Turner than Dionne Warwick. Aretha, she was not. None of those songs ever really hit the radio. It's not just that they were raw, lyrically and sonically. The music Betty made wasn't like anything heard before. It was somewhere in between genres, her own kind of fusion. Betty liked funk and soul, but some of her favorite bands were The Who and The Rolling Stones. It's primal music made by a primal force, a feminist in fishnets. She defied classification. As Miles once said, Betty Davis was Madonna before Madonna, Prince before Prince. The late 1960s, following the end of legal segregation in the South, were a time of renewed freedom for Black people in America, however incremental. It's around this time that second-wave feminism caught on, and women were newly empowered and angry about the systemic sexism that kept them second to men. This should have been the perfect time for someone like Betty to ascend to the throne as the Queen of Funk. But coming out of the civil rights era, African-American leaders were especially concerned about presentation. There was a lot of focus on Black images in media. The civil rights establishment was railing against so-called Black exploitation films, like The Black Angels, Superfly, and Foxy Brown. And Betty's overtly sexual, unabashedly in-your-face presence was perceived to be of a piece with these films as being a problem for Black Americans. Black musicians and especially Black women musicians, 
had to be the epitome of purity. Picture the clean-cut propriety of the Supremes, their expertly coiffed hair and matching floor-length gowns. There was a feeling that black people would have to be more civilized, more tame than their white counterparts to ever truly be seen as equal. Betty didn't care about any of that. I ain't nothing but a nasty gal, she's saying, running her hands through her wild afro, caressing herself, using the microphone like a certain microphone-shaped appendage. Betty's live show was known for dropping jaws and sometimes dropping men. Literally. On at least one occasion, a young man was so stunned by Betty's sensuous, dominant performance that he fell over. It was so, so sexual for the time. As for Betty... Well, i just say it was raw, she politely told an interviewer in 1974 in one of the few recorded interviews that exists with the singer. The fishnet, the furry boots, this all sounds pretty tame today. But to see her up there on that stage, writhing around, feeling herself, it set folks off in the early 70s. And her lyrics didn't get any less explicit on her next two records. They Say I'm Different followed her debut. Her track, He Was a Big Freak, is gotta be one of the earliest BDSM references in American popular music. I'd get him off with my turquoise chain. Audiences had literally never seen or heard this stuff from a woman before. They were not ready for it. Crowds would stare, dumbfounded by the 20-something in a zebra-striped jumpsuit brashly singing about sex up on the stage. Critics didn't care for it, or at least didn't understand it. Even Penthouse, yes, Penthouse, compared watching Betty Davis perform to attending a movie, expecting Walt Disney, and instead seeing your first X-rated flick. Betty Davis walked so Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion could run. Her friends would see her on stage for the first time and think, this is not Betty. This cannot be Betty. The nasty gal on stage was a persona, an alter ego she climbed into like she did that zebra jumpsuit. And as her issues with the industry started mounting, it hurt her, Betty Davis, the person. On stage, she'd prance around while fans pitched drugs toward the stage. It was a payday every night for her band. But privately, Betty didn't drink or do drugs. She'd sip tea and eat rice cakes. She loved to read. She had a super close relationship with her father. Not all the music Betty made was so steeped in sexuality, but the explicit nature of her hard funk meant it didn't really get her play, which meant it wasn't hitting with listeners, and it definitely wasn't making her any friends in the executive suite. Doors in the industry kept closing. Always white men with their suits and their constipated notions about what people wanted to hear. By 1975, Betty was at the peak of her musical career, but just teetering there. She had released Nasty Gal, a record named for her wild and boisterous onstage persona. Pressed by Island Records at the urging of Robert Palmer, with whom she had a relationship, it was her first major label release, and it would be her last. Betty wasn't the only one singing about sex, of course. It's just that she was pretty much the only woman doing it. 
Male funk stars were wearing tight pants and singing about their insatiable sex drive, about women they'd like to get to know. And there was Betty alongside them, reclaiming her sexuality, saying, yeah, I know I'm hot and I'm going to sing about it. The NAACP didn't think it was quite so empowering. Frankly, they thought Betty was a disgrace to her race. Needless to say, religious groups didn't dig it either. Both the NAACP and some of those repressed moral types pressured radio stations to boycott her songs. And so none of her records were a commercial success. By the time Betty started working on a fourth, bringing her band to a blue-collar Mississippi Delta middle-of-nowhere town called Bogalusa to record together, things were starting to fall apart. There was some disagreement about the songs. And Betty wasn't the kind of person who gave up during a disagreement. She wasn't about to be suppressed. And when she walked out on those recording sessions, her album unreleased, she walked out of the studio for the last time. It was rumored that she'd died. That's how hard she fell off the map. Betty was only willing to do things her way. She wasn't going to cater to stuffy industry execs or tone down the raw vigor of her artistic vision. She was an all-or-nothing kind of gal. So when she vanished, she vanished. No reunion tours, no career retrospective, no tell-all memoir of her time spent with Andy Warhol and Jimi Hendrix, no woman-scorned interviews about Miles. She didn't pop up every few months to weigh in on the industry. There were just a few interviews with her from the early 70s, and then, poof, out of sight. In the 1980s, she briefly resurfaced in Tokyo, but she played only a few shows there. She became the very model of a recluse. Her own friends and former collaborators couldn't reach her. You could hardly even find her records. Mentally, she was starting to collapse particularly after the death of her father. She believed people were following her around. After a nervous breakdown, her mother had her hospitalized. She'd eventually moved back to Pittsburgh, where she still lives today. Band members would occasionally reach her over the decades that followed, but she was quieter, more withdrawn, more internal. Betty became something of a cult figure, her records relegated to the shelves of musicians in the know and a dedicated few collectors who heard something wholly original in her. The songs that she'd recorded with Hugh in the late 1960s were archived, forgotten, essentially stashed in a vault. For 47 years, those demo sessions stayed buried. They only re-emerged after a Seattle record label called Light in the Attic found a way to release them in 2016. Listening to them, you hear her raw talent. These are demo tracks, many of them covers, but they crackle with her undeniable groove. The same label reissued Betty's other albums as well, including the abandoned and previously unreleased fourth album, Is It Love or Desire? Mostly forgotten for four decades, Betty had a renaissance of sorts. The Wire placed her nasty gal on its list of 100 records that set the world on fire while no one was listening. In 2017, an independent documentary was made about her. Betty, they say I'm different. 
Its director, Philip Cox, calls her the Greta Garbo of the music industry. She's just not all that interested in press. In Cox's movie, Betty talks mostly through a tape recorder. If she's filmed it all today, at her modest apartment, the camera focuses mostly on her hand, her manicured nails painted a perfect baby blue as she lights incense or writes in a spiral notepad. And in true Betty fashion, she does things her way. The film ends, as music docs like this often do, with her old band getting back together. They call and ask her to join them again sometime. But this is not that movie, and Betty is not that kind of star. Having made peace with her solitude, her private life, she chooses to retain it. Betty is, in everything, a woman who knows what she wants. If people are interested in the music again, that's great. But she won't be talked into anything. She's since been sampled by rappers Ice Cube and Method Man. Is cited as an influence on pioneers like Macy Gray, Lenny Kravitz, Janelle Monet, and most obviously, Prince. And in 2019, a new Betty Davis song, A Little Bit Hot Tonight, was released, performed by Danielle Maggio and produced by Betty. I like that nobody knows who I am when they see me. I like to live quietly, she says. But it would be nice to be remembered that at one time she made good music and she made people smile. Men in music who are ahead of their time get invites to perform at their Hall of Fame induction ceremonies. Women who are ahead of their time, well, more often that looks like what happened to Betty. And black women who are ahead of their time, you need only witness Big Mama Thornton, who brought to life Hound Dog long before Elvis. Betty Mabry kept Miles' name because she thought it might help her career. Instead, it meant that people only wanted to talk about her ex-husband. He'd become one of the most celebrated American musicians, a legend in his time. The music he made under Betty's influence among some of his most highly regarded. Miles gave her credit for influencing his own tectonic shift in style and praised her for being way ahead of her time. But, like so many ex-husbands and wives, he also seemed to resent her. In his autobiography, he claims she cheated on him with Hendrix. He blames her for the turmoil she brought to his personal life. But this story isn't about Miles Davis. This is about Betty Davis, the uncompromising, funky, original, nasty gal. This story is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created by Eleanor Wells. This episode was written by Emily Castle. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and composer. Matt Bowden provides logistical support. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and additional writing by Scott Janovitz. I'm Nikki Lynette. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at at Nikki Lynette on Twitter and Instagram, at Double Elvis on Instagram, and at Double Elvis FM on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more great podcasts from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com. <laughs>